brief break from our series in the book of Zephaniah, Prophecy of Zephaniah, as we're going to be looking at Romans, the 12th chapter, which I'd like you to turn to in your Bibles with me this morning. In the next Lord's Day, if it be His will, and we are together again, we'll be considering a theme having to do with the Protestant Reformation, as that is Reformation Sunday. And so, two weeks from today, we will continue the prophecy of Zephaniah. Before this morning, please turn with me to Romans chapter 12. I'd like to read the entire chapter for you. Hear now the word of God. Therefore, I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. For by the grace given me, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment in accordance with the measure of faith God has given you. Just as each of us has one body with many members, and these members do not all have the same function, so in Christ we who are many form one body, and each member belongs to all the others. We have different gifts according to the grace given us. If a man's gift is prophesying, let him use it in proportion to his faith. If it is serving, let him serve. If it is teaching, let him teach. If it is encouragement, let him encourage. If it is contributing to the needs of others, let him give generously. If it is leadership, let him govern diligently. If it is showing mercy, let him do it cheerfully. Love must be sincere. Hate what is evil. Cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Honor one another above yourselves. Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor serving the Lord. Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. Share with God's people who are in need. Practice hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Mourn with those who mourn. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position. Do not be conceited. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everybody. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my friends, but leave room for God's wrath, for it is written, It is mine to avenge, I will repay the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. And thus far, the reading of God's Word. When is it good to be different? And sometimes it's good to be different. Sometimes when you are unique or have something which is unique, it's very different, it's extraordinary, it goes beyond that which is ordinary. To be different is highly praised, it's highly sought after. I have a young lady in one of my classes at the high school who has a reputation 
for dressing quite uniquely, stylishly, among all of her um, uh, classmates. Uh, this tends to rankle some people. Uh, they wonder, what's wrong with this girl? Why does she feel this need to stand out? But I think most people have a little bit different opinion. They think really, um, pretty well of her. They say, you know, she's unique. She's not afraid to assert herself. She's not afraid to be different. And they kind of like that, that somebody is different and doesn't just kind of fade into the background along with the mass of humanity. Sometimes it's very good to be different. One thinks of a unique vase, a priceless vase, a vase that cannot be replaced as being different, unique, extraordinary, and good. To be a unique car, to be an antique car, to be different, to not fit in with everything else brings and imputes value to that car as it does to stamps and to any number of other things we could refer to this morning. But then again, sometimes being different isn't good, isn't really something that's flattering and praiseworthy. You know what it is to damn somebody by this faint praise when they have a new dress or a new hat or a new car, or a new way of doing things, or a new pair of shoes, or a hat, or a new book, or whatever it may be, and they say, how do you like my new whatever it is? And you, remembering your mother's advice to not say anything if you can't say something nice, hesitate and say, well, it's different. That is to really not give a compliment, but just the opposite. Although to say something's different and extraordinary might be a compliment, and therefore formally meets the outward criterion of being courteous and polite, it nevertheless, under the circumstances, functions just the opposite and tends to cut the person down. What you're saying is, well, <laughs> you're weird. And so, when is different good? Different's good when it's unique, and different is bad when it's weird. You see, in the English language, allows for that, if you will, twofold application of that one word, different. Apostle Paul comes to us this morning, and in a word, he says, You should be a different people. You really should be different. Well, that's been said before of us as Christians. There have been people who say, you know, those people over there, they're different. They're strange. They're peculiar. They're weird. Look at the way they act. They don't respond the way people are supposed to respond to things. You know, after Paul gives this exhortation to be different in verses 1 and 2 of Romans 12, he goes on to give a long list of commandments. Now let me just take a moment here, just an aside, if you will. There are those who tell us that in the age of the New Testament, we are now under grace. God no longer treats us as little children with do's and don'ts. God doesn't lay down laws for us and stipulations for the way we should live. But rather, we've become mature sons of God and no longer treated as slaves, no longer treated as people in their minority, underage children in need of some kind of a tutor and somebody to discipline them and keep them in line, God no longer gives us commandments 
I remember when I was in college at an evangelical Christian college, there was a fellow who was really excited for the things of the Lord, and I think his excitement took him beyond his understanding of the Scriptures because one day he shared with us how the Lord had revealed to him this great breakthrough in his life that God doesn't give any commandments to his children in the New Testament. He only gives suggestions. He only gives exhortations. But he never lays down the law. Well, my friend had not read Romans 12, apparently. Or if he had, he did so with very colored glasses so that he couldn't see it. Paul lays down the law here. I don't think that Paul is doing anything contrary to what God has said previously. I don't think God is changing his mind. I don't think he's doing, if you will, a, a change or a revolution or an evolution, whichever you want to say it is, in his moral standards. But Paul lays down the law. He says, do this, don't do that. Just look at some of these. I mean, they come very quickly. Your love must be sincere. Hate what is evil. Be devoted to one another. Honor one another. Don't lack in zeal. Keep your fervor. Be joyful in hope. Be patient in affliction. Faithful in prayer. Share with God's people. Practice hospitality. Ten commandments. Boy, Paul's got a lot more than ten right here in this chapter. But what I want you to see here is not just this formal truth that Paul lays down the law. I want you to see the kind of people he tells us to be. He says, don't think of yourself more highly than you should. Oh, now there's something that the world understands right away, right? You act like that and you're going to fit in right in with everybody. Oh, no, you're not. He says, understand that you belong to one another and that you must function for the good of the whole body of Christ. No more rugged individualism in your life. Remember that the congregation is equally important in your own individual life and desires. God's given you a gift and he expects it exercised for the good of the whole. No selfishness anymore in your life. Now the world understands that, isn't that right? No, it really doesn't. The world doesn't understand what it is to do something for the sake of the greater good of the body. The world understands what it, what it means to do something for others if it's going to come back and do something good for me. The world understands self-interest, but it doesn't understand the interest of others as Paul presents it here. Paul says that we are to hate evil. The world tells us we need to be tolerant of others. Paul says that we must give honor to others above ourselves. Paul says that in the midst of situations which might bring us down, we must be joyful, patient, and faithful. Faithful in prayer. We need to practice hospitality. And then he comes to a set of exhortations or commands. That you're basically going to have to go right outside this world's way of thinking. And contrary to the flow, he says, because when people persecute you, you should bless them. Don't curse but bless. Don't repay evil for evil. Be careful to be at peace with everybody and don't take revenge. I've even seen bumper stickers, I guess you have, say, I love to get even. Paul says you shouldn't love to get even. You should love peace. You should be willing to let things be put into the hands of God. Don't be proud. Don't be afraid to associate or unwilling to associate with people who are humbled and in a low position. Don't be conceited. 
Now, if we were to do everything Paul tells us to do, I'm telling you we'd be different people. We'd be different in both senses. We'd be considered weird by the world and unique in the sight of God. For God calls us to be a different people, to stand out from the crowd, to be unique. In John the 17th chapter, in Jesus' high priestly prayer, notice, will you, what he prays in verses 14 to 17. This is John chapter 17, and then at verse 14, Jesus speaking says, I have given them your word, and the world has hated them. For they are not of the world any more than I am of the world. My prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. They are not of the world even as I am not of the world. Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. Jesus explains that those who are his people are not of the world. We aren't worldly people. Does that mean that we don't have any worldly interest? We don't wear clothes or use money or live in houses or eat food? No, he doesn't mean that at all. He says we are not from this world. That this is not, if you will, our home. That our hearts, our citizenship, our belonging, and our longings are all in heaven. We've been born from above. We're a different kind of people. We long for a new heavens and a new earth wherein righteousness dwells. This world is not our home. We are, in a sense, just passing through. And so we are not of this world. And yet Jesus says, Lord, don't take them out of the world. Jesus is not asking that we be removed. There's nothing of what might be called a rapture mentality in Jesus' theology. Jesus does not ask that we be removed from the conflict. He doesn't ask that just because our spiritual origin is not here in this world. He doesn't ask that just because we're not of this world that we renounce the world. He doesn't push us into monasteries or encourage monastic living. He doesn't ask us to go out on the hilltops and, and be looking upward and hoping that someday we'll just be rescued from this rat race. He says, no, keep them holy in the midst of the world. I want to tell you that the alternatives are much easier. It'd be much easier just to be taken out of the situation. It'd be much easier to renounce the world and go off in the desert and live in a commune or some kind of a monastic order. It'd be much easier. However, Paul tells us that those sorts of things don't do any good for the uh, purifying of the flesh. That as a matter of fact, these are satanic ways of trying to take care of our problems. Jesus calls us to a much higher calling. He calls us to be holy in the midst of the rat race. He says to the Lord that the prayer is not that we be removed from the world, but rather we be kept from the evil one. Holiness in the midst of the world. That's what it means when he says sanctify them by the truth. To sanctify is to consecrate. It is to set aside. It's to put in a special position for special use. Jesus asked that his Father would sanctify his followers, that they might be set up from the world, not geographically, but spiritually, that they would be a special people, set for his service, given over to his kingdom. And they are to be set apart by the word of truth, notice. The sanctification takes place by God's word. And we have far too many get-holy-fast schemes 
available today. That if we just say the right prayers or go to the right meetings or give the right offerings or work up in ourselves the right feelings, we're going to become holy people. Jesus said that the standard of holiness, if you will, the directions for our improvement in our spiritual estate are to be found in God's Word. Quite obviously, if we are not people of the Scriptures, we are not going to be holy people. It shouldn't surprise us that we live in a nation that although so many millions profess to be born-again Christians, we don't see born-again living. It shouldn't surprise us because we also live in a nation which is unprecedented in the history of the Christian church for its ignorance of Scripture. The most elementary points of biblical teaching are lost on even people who have claimed the name of Christ for a decade or so. Because our Christianity is, for the most part these days, not informed by Scripture, but it's informed by feeling, and by emotion, and by personal opinion, and by the waves of social, um, uh, well, by the fads that our society submits to. Our Christianity is often a Christianity of response rather than a Christianity of offense. It's not a Christianity that goes and takes the lead. It's a Christianity that rides on the coattails. And we live in a day and age where, in fact, the Christian church is for the most part conformed to what it sees round about, trying to fit in, compromising doctrines here, fudging a bit there, being silent, of course, when we're going to be offensive somewhere else, so that we might win for ourselves a higher esteem in the eyes of those who are worldly wise. Now, I wish I could tell you that it's otherwise, but I am not a faithful prophet of God if I pretend to you that we are in a good situation today, the Christian church for the most part is full of wounds and tears. It is unfaithful and broken down. It's ignorant and often very blind. And it's because we are not sanctified by the word of God. Jesus says, sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. Those who are going to be different, those who are going to be unique, those who are going to be set apart from the world must be sanctified by their knowledge of Scripture. In 1 Timothy 4, verses 1 to 5, Paul tells us how everything is to be set apart. 1 Timothy 4, beginning at verse 1, Paul says, The Spirit clearly says that in later times some will abandon the faith and follow deceiving spirits and things taught by demons. Such teachings come through hypocritical liars whose consciences have been seared as well. They forbid people to marry and order them to abstain from certain foods which God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and who know the truth. For everything God created is good and nothing is to be rejected if it's received with thanksgiving because it is consecrated by the word of God and prayer. Now we see a second ingredient, a second function, a second way by which our lives are changed and consecrated and set apart for God, by which our lives are made holy. Paul says everything that we come into contact with must be set apart by the Word of God, we've seen that in Jesus' own prayer, and by prayer. So that it's not inappropriate for a Christian to pray that his or her new car will be used for God's service or his or her new house might be a place where the kingdom of God is followed, or that one's talents would be used to glorify the Savior. 
One's money might first and foremost be given for the advance of the kingdom of God. No, Paul says we need to pray that everything we have, that everything that we use and touch will belong to God. We need to have something like the Midas touch. Remember King Midas who had prayed that everything he touched would turn to gold. Of course, that short-sighted prayer um, and request uh, gave him more trouble than it was worth. He found out that he couldn't even eat his food because it turned to gold and man can't live on gold that way. But we do need in the spiritual realm something like the Midas touch that everything we touch is consecrated by prayer. Everything that comes into contact with our lives. Paul tells us specifically that we are not to teach the forbidding of things like marriage and the eating of certain foods. Now I don't deny that some foods are better to be eaten than others. Paul's not you know, saying anything contrary to what might be called a health food interest in our society. That's all well and good and it honors the sentiment promoting human life. But there are those who teach, in fact in the ancient world, some very strange teachings about not eating foods. Pythagoras, whom all of you know because of the Pythagorean theorem in geometry. You all remember that, of course, from your high school days, geometry, Pythagoras. The Pythagorean theorem came from a religious cult, the Pythagoreans, and their leader not only had some very interesting geometric ideas, but he had some very strange and mystical religious ideas about how to be made right, and in fact, to be in harmony with the universe. And one of the ways that you would be in harmony with the universe is if you did not eat beans. I, uh, I can't begin to give a rationale for that philosophy. I mean, it strikes me as weird. Not unique, weird. But nevertheless, Pythagoras felt that we'd become holy people in his pagan understanding of holiness and we wouldn't eat beans. But it's not just, you see, those outside the Christian church that teach this sort of thing. For years, the Roman Catholic Fellowship, I will not call it a church, the Catholic Fellowship taught that people shouldn't eat meat on Fridays and that certain people who, if they wanted to be really holy, should abstain from marriage. And, you know, for years and years, decades and decades, indeed for centuries, the general cultural attitude has developed around that Roman Catholic teaching that those who abstain from certain things, like marriage and eating certain things, those who deprive themselves are really special and holy people. They are close to God. But look what Paul says. Such teachings come through hypocritical liars. He says they abandon the faith and follow deceiving spirits. These are the things taught by demons. Yes, these people are drawn apart from the world, but they're not drawn apart toward God. They're drawn apart from the world toward hell. Now that shocks us because we are so accustomed to thinking that those who deprive themselves are better off, that they're really holier and better people. Paul says it's demonic to think that holiness comes that way. Holiness comes through the spiritual Midas touch. Holiness comes by people going ahead and eating and marrying and enjoying these things because in prayer they consecrate it all to God. Everything is set apart by the Word of God in prayer. In 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 1-5, to 5, we read more about the 
strangeness of God's people. 1 Peter 4 at verse 1. Therefore, since Christ suffered in his body, arm yourselves also with the same attitude, because he who has suffered in his body is done with sin. As a result, he does not live in the rest of his life, he does not live the rest of his earthly life for evil human desires, but rather for the will of God. For you have spent enough time in the past doing what pagans choose to do, living in debauchery, lust, drunkenness, orgies, carousing, and detestable idolatry. They think it's strange that you do not plunge with them into the same flood of dissipation, and they heap abuse on you. But they will have to give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. Peter says, I know you're going to be strange people. You ran with the crowd once that, well, when the weekend came, it was time to go out and to visit every bar you could get to. Be closed at two in the morning. To just as drunk as a skunk. To just act like, you know, your life was one of just utter dissipation. To use whatever sexual energy you could possibly find in ways which are not approved by God. To talk in a way which the human tongue was never intended to be used for. You used to run with the people like that, Peter says, and now that you've become a Christian, you've had it with that past life. You live a new life. You don't live for those sorts of things. You live for the will of God. And you know what your friends say about you? They say, boy, she's different. He's weird. He's changed. He's got religion. And they don't mean that as a compliment. Peter long ago knew that people would say that sort of thing. He says you should just expect it. But God will judge the living and the dead. You live in terms of your understanding of a coming day of judgment. Don't live in terms of the opinion of others. Live in terms of the judgment of God. All right, so we see then God calls us to be different, to stand out, to be a unique people. And this is Romans, the 12th chapter where Paul exhorts God's people to uniqueness, or, if you will, to transformation. There are two ways we can run our lives. He says we can live our lives trying to conform to what we see about us or trying to be transformed. It's conforming or transforming that we must choose. Romans 12:1. Therefore, I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy to offer your bodies as living sacrifices. Oh, I wish I had weeks to talk to you about just that one verse. It's amazing. First of all, look at that word, therefore. I told you, and I'll tell you again, because it's worth remembering, that every time you see the word, therefore, you better ask, what is it there for? Why does Paul say, therefore? Because he's bringing now, if you will, he's coming to the bottom line of everything he's taught in the first 12 chapters, first 11 chapters. As he comes down to chapter 12, he says, Therefore, given all of this theology that has gone before, what is the purpose of it? Where does the rubber hit the road? Paul says, Therefore, by the mercies of God, present yourself as living sacrifices. And just look at that expression, living sacrifices, contradiction in terms. Sacrifices are dead. That's what it means to be sacrificed. You know, to die and to be offered up. Paul says, therefore, if you understand the mercy of God that I've been expounding to you in this theology in the first 11 chapters, although, of course, 
he didn't put it as 11 chapters, but in what has gone before, Paul says, you're going to be a living sacrifice. Often enough I have heard preachers say, in my own denomination for that matter, but uh, especially those who make a real point of uh, urging people to give money to their ministries, that what they are looking for today is a sacrificial offering. Sacrificial offering. I'm going to tell you something. Paul would not be satisfied with what we call a sacrificial offering. Because you see, that notion of a sacrificial offering still has embodied in it the idea of something which I give to God. It's the sacrifice leaving me going to God. And you know, that's much too easy. I hate to tell you that, especially those who are struggling financially or those who find it hard to bring their tithes and offerings. But you know, tithing and giving offerings to God is much too easy. It's not nearly enough. Does that mean we've decided in this church now to ask that you give not 10% but 20% or 30% of your income? No. Because you see, that wouldn't be enough either. Oh, for crying out, what, 40 or 50? What is it they want here in this church? No, nope, that's not enough either. See, as long as we think that the sacrifice demanded by God is something that can leave us and just be given to Him, we have the wrong idea of sacrifice. Paul says, no, I want you to be sacrificed. Does that mean we're supposed to go out and to beat ourselves with whips or uh, throw ourselves in front of a coming train in the name of Jesus? No. He wants you to be a living sacrifice. He wants your life to be sacrificed to God. Not by throwing it away. Not by dying, except of course dying to sin, but rather through your life to show that you are sacrificed in everything that you are, everything that you say, everything that you think, everything that you do, that you are sacrificed to God. God won't accept anything less. And this can't be done by conforming yourself to the world. You must rather be a transformed person. God has made provision for this kind of renewal for his people. In Colossians, the third chapter, in verse 10, Paul tells us, And you have put, off the new, put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge and the image of its creator. There is a new person that is put on one that's now renewed after the Creator. And similar language is used in Ephesians chapter 4 at verse 24, where Paul says, And put on the new self, created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. In short, Paul says Christians, they march to the beat of a different drummer. They don't worry about conformity to the world. They don't worry about being called weird. They don't worry about being called strange. In that sense, they want to be strange. They want to be different. They want to stand out. They want to be transformed. And so admittedly, our ethic and our lifestyle is unique. It's different, which means it's approved in the eyes of God. For you see, our lifestyle shows what is the holy and the pleasing before God, the good, pleasing, and perfect will which He wants for us. And so don't conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your minds. And if you are transformed, then you're going to be a transforming person as well. Paul exhorts us in Ephesians 6 
to public righteousness, not just to internal righteousness, but he says that we must have external defense, righteousness. We must reprove the works of darkness, that we must not be foolish, but rather understand what the will of God is. I think it's to the shame, it's to the blame of Christians that um, our world round about us is degenerating so badly in its spiritual and its moral condition. We claim to be born again, we claim to be changed people, we claim to be transformed, but the evidence of that power and transformation is not seen and that we don't transform everything round about us. And so God says, I want a living sacrifice today. My son has been sacrificed in your behalf. And I ask that you now be sacrificed in his. As Paul said, for I'm crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Yet not I, but Christ lives in me. In the life that I now live by faith, I live by the faith of the Son of God himself for me. Crucified, yet alive. My life, but not mine. Not conformed, but transformed. A living sacrifice. It's only reasonable. Let's pray. Lord, we do pray you would take our lives and let them be consecrated to your will that we might understand what it is to be different not only in the eyes of people round about us, but to be different in your eyes above all. Different not because we are weird or peculiar or have strange schemes for a different and mystical sense of holiness, but different because we stand out from the ways of this world. Different because everything that we have, everything that we are, has been given to your service. Devoted to your kingdom. Lord, from the heart that your kingdom would come and that your will would be done on earth even as it is in heaven. And Lord, this day begin to do your will through us, your living sacrifices. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.